we say that we go to church. And we go to church kind of like how we go to the game or go see a movie. And we show up and we sit in our seats. And for some of us, it's the, it's the same seat. And we, we kind of have our spot. We show up and we, we talk about how we're fed or we're filled. And that, that makes sense on some levels because when you do come to church, there is part of that. And that's okay. And you do physically come to a place to worship. So going to church is partly accurate, but I think it's a little bit flawed as well. We show up and we, um, we sit and we, we have some sort of interaction with, uh, with worship or some sort of social environment out in the cafe. And, and it's not just one side. It's very two-sided. It's very good. But then we get to the sermon and things start to change, don't they? I mean, where else do you go and you spend 30 minutes listening to someone talk? That's just not normal for us. Even, even in education, if you're still in school, that's, that's beginning to change. It's not as much lecture-based. And so when we come to this point, we, we start to realize that maybe things are a little bit different. And, and, and if we were really honest and take a look back, a sermon is kind of a weird thing. Because it's very one-sided. It's someone telling you things. And, and what are you supposed to do with that? Well, people talk about having some sort of application. They want some sort of takeaway. And as someone who, who communicates and writes sermons, like I want to give you guys something to walk away with. But if that is where it ends, that's kind of missing the point as well. Because when we talk about application, we're talking about taking something to our lives. We're going to take something away. When in fact, I think it's much more helpful to think about the sermon and going to church and this following Christ in terms of implication. How is our life part of this story? And so that direction has to shift. Instead of taking away, we're going to. And we're, we're kind of aligning our lives with what is, what's going on in God's story, with the gospel. And that's a change and that's a shift. And, and this morning, what I want to be talking about is intimacy. Intimacy with God. And we're going to talk about how intimacy is uncomfortable. How it changes relationships. How with God, it's kind of this or nothing. But as we get started and as we look at this story, I want to do something a little bit differently. We're going to look at, read a, a passage of scripture, but I don't want to read it. I want to have one of you or two of you actually read it with me. And I've got, I've got the, the, the script written out and you can follow along. It's nice and highlighted and it's not going to be a big deal at all. And it's a, it's a modern translation. So there's no, there's no like really odd words, but, but I'm going to need a couple volunteers. And so what you're going to do here in a moment is I'm going to ask a couple volunteers and you're going to come up here and there's three parts and I'm going to read the narrated part. So I'll start. So you only have to go first. So I'll start and then I'll hand the mic to somebody and they'll read their part and they'll, it'll pass back and forth. And this is just a way you're going to humor me. You're going to humor me a little bit to do something a little bit differently. To kind of create this moment where intimacy happens. And so I know this might be a challenge for you guys. And it's two male parts, but it doesn't have to be guys. A girl can read this. It would be fine. But do I have a couple volunteers who would be brave enough to come to me? I'd even come to you if you would. Who would like to volunteer to help me out with this? Larry will. <laughs> No, I know Larry. I know Larry with the Haiti with. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna put Larry in the spot. But I will if no one volunteers. Is somebody willing to volunteer for us? You throw your hand up. Okay, I saw right there and right there. I'm gonna come back to you guys. Why don't you guys come to the aisles here? You slide down to the aisles. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Come right here. And so what what we're gonna do is this is a this is a translation of the Bible. It's written kind of like in a dialogue uh, form. 
And so they're going to read, I, just, I don't know who I gave what, but I think uh, the two parts are Jesus and Simon. And they're going to read their parts, and I'm going to read the narration. And so it's written kind of in a, a dialogue form, so they kind of have their spot where they come in. But if, this is from Luke chapter 7. It says this, Once a Pharisee named Simon invited Jesus to be a guest for a meal. So picture this. Just as Jesus enters the man's house and takes his place at the table, a woman from the city, notorious as a woman of ill repute, follows him in. She has heard that Jesus will be at the Pharisee's home, so she comes in and approaches him, carrying an alabaster alabaster flask of perfumed oil. Then she begins to cry. She kneels down so her tears fall on Jesus' feet, and she starts wiping his feet with her own hair. Then she actually kisses his feet, and she pours the perfumed oil on them. Now I know this guy is a fraud. If he were a real prophet, he would have known this woman is a sinner, and he would have never let her get near him, much less touch him or kiss him. Knowing what the Pharisee is thinking, Simon, I want to tell you a story. Tell me, teacher. Two men owned a certain two men owned a certain lender a lot of money. One owed a hundred weeks' wages, and the other owed ten weeks' wages. Both men defaulted on their loans, but the lender forgave them both. Here's a question for you. Which man will love the lender more? Well, I guess it would be the one who was forgiven more. Good answer. Now Jesus turns around, so he's facing the woman, although he's still speaking to Simon. Do you see this woman here? It's kind of funny. I Talking to Mike. <laughs> I entered your home, and you didn't provide a basin of water so I could wash the road dust from my feet. You didn't give me a customary kiss of greeting and welcome. You didn't offer me the common courtesy of providing oil to brighten my face. But this woman has wet my feet with her own tears and washed them with her own hair. She hasn't stopped kissing my feet since I came in, and she has applied perfumed oil to my feet. This woman has been forgiven much, and she is showing much love. But the person who has shown little love shows how little forgiveness he has received. To the woman, your sins are forgiven. Who does this guy think he is? He has the audacity to claim the authority to forgive sins. To the woman, your faith has liberated you. Go in peace. Excellent. Let's give these guys a round of applause. Thanks so much. That was perfect. So we, we have this, uh, this story. And, and in this story, we have this situation where a woman approaches Jesus at a meal. And, and in this story, we have two people who react very differently to Jesus. We have two people who, who act, act in a way that's very opposite. And, and it's interesting their reaction to this experience of Jesus. So when we have these, these things we can learn from, we can kind of, kind of put ourselves in this position. But basically what is happening here is Simon the Pharisee is inviting Jesus in to give him a test. And according to Simon, Jesus doesn't pass the test. And so therefore, Jesus is pushed away. He's no longer allowed to be part of that inner circle. And with this fan and follower dynamic that we've been talking about, fans like distance. We like to create distance in our lives from things that, that maybe are going to be calling us to something more. 
something that is more intentional or more, more intimate or more relational, whatever it might be. But fans like distance, like to know everything before they take that step. Whereas a follower is just going to react. A follower is going to have an experience and react fully to it. And so over the last couple of weeks, we've talked about this fan versus follower dynamic. In the first week, we talked about kind of gauging where we are. And we talked about the DTR moment, where you have a moment where you define the relationship. Uh, my wife Heidi and I were talking about that, and, and Heidi has this way of just remembering things. And so she was, she was talking about the, our time that we DTR'd. And not just in the terms of, of what was said or where it happened, but the exact date and all these little minute details that she remembered from the DTR moment. Last week, Steve talked to you guys about how this is really kind of open to anyone. That anyone is allowed into this. This is an open invitation uh, for all. Because ultimately, when we're talking about this fan-follower dynamic, and we're talking about intimacy, we're talking about the importance of being known. We're talking about the importance of allowing God to know us. And hopefully through this series, God is kind of messing, messing with you a little bit. That there's some challenge going on in your life. That maybe your heart is beginning to change. And so as we continue this, as we continue to talk about this, we continue to talk about intimacy, something that, that maybe some of us are a little bit uncomfortable with talking about. My challenge to you is that you just open yourself up. Because when we're talking about intimacy, we're not talking about that you choose intimacy, but choosing this ongoing process, this continual thing. And, and whether you like it or not, whether you're really comfortable with this or not, God knows you intimately. The God of the universe who created you knows you. Whether you want to be known or not, God knows you intimately. Now, for me, that's a little uncomfortable. It's a little uncomfortable to think that I cannot, no matter how hard I try, hide from God. What I want to be a secret is not a secret to God. That everything about me is known by Him. That's a little odd. That's a little weird. We think of ourselves as being very much in control. But when we're talking about this relationship, we have no control over how much God knows us. He knows us completely, and He knows us intimately. And so that slightly odd feeling that no matter how hard we, we try to hide is very real. And we see this the very first time this, this happens is in Genesis. If you have your Bibles open up to Genesis, the very first book of the Bible, we're going to be in chapter 3. In chapter 3, what has happened is God has already created the world. He's created humans. He's kind of allowed them to be in relationship, but things fall apart. And so God is approaching them to be in relationship, to speak with them again, starting in verse 8, and there's a problem. So Genesis chapter 3, verse 8. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord, hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, who told you that you were naked? If you've ever been to a wedding reception, you walk in, and if it's anything kind of normal or typical, there's some sort of dance floor and tables around it. And when you first get there, the dance floor is completely empty. It's almost like it's hot lava and the adults don't want to go out there. But as soon as music starts and as soon as maybe the food's been served, the first ones to go out on the dance floor are who? It's the kids. It's toddlers. It's little little four or five-year-olds. It's little kids out there on the dance floor having a blast. Have you ever heard a toddler or a little kid say that they're a bad dancer? No. 
But why is it that the little kids are out there and the adults aren't? Because at some point, we implicitly or explicitly were told that we're a bad dancer, that we look silly. And so we stop. We're afraid. And so we hide at our tables. It's interesting that, that God asked Adam and Eve, who told you that you were naked? Who told you that you weren't good enough? Who told you that you can't be next to me? Who told you that you had to hide and be afraid? In that moment, when we hide, when we're afraid, we are not allowing that intimate relationship with God to truly happen, to truly take place. And I love the fact that that is God's first question once he's talked to him, is that where have you been and why, why have you been hiding and who told you that you were naked? Who told you this? Back in 2008, Heidi's grandfather was very, very sick. He, he passed away shortly after, but we got a call. And, his, and Joe had been fighting cancer for some time and, and been in and out of the hospital. He had bladder cancer and it spread to other areas of his body. And Joe was, had, a, had a stroke. And so we were in Illinois at the time. The, the church that we were there was gracious enough to kind of let us go. And so we went. We didn't know how long we were going to be there. And we get there, and on the way, the family had made this very tough and very personal decision that they had heard that there was nothing else that they could do, that they were going to take Joe home. And if you've ever been around those moments where you take someone home that's, that's to die, you take them home to die, and you've ever worked with, with hospice care or any kind of in-home nursing, you know how incredible those people are and how, how, how truly Christ-like they are in their love. But you also know how hard it is. And so we show up at the home, and, and we are there to kind of support and be there. And because we're off work, we can kind of be there all the time. And so for about five days, Heidi and I are, are spending a lot of nights over there. We're, we're helping the family take care of Joe's every need. We're helping to give him dignity and comfort. And in many ways, it was one of the more raw and intimate experiences I've ever had. And since then, my relationship with my in-laws, my relationship with Heidi's family has been changed radically. It has been changed radically because in that moment, no one could hide anymore. No one could put on a good face. No one could pretend that things were going to be okay. It was real and it was raw. And I wouldn't want to go through that again. But because of that, my relationship is different in a good way. And so when we're talking about intimacy, it's more than just a relationship. It's more than just an experience. It's kind of an ongoing experience that, that, that changes everything from that point on. It's some sort of landmark in our lives. When we look at our relationship with God, maybe we have those as well. And when we read the story in Luke 7 that was read earlier, we see that this woman has an experience with Jesus, with God in the flesh, and she reacts differently. She changes who she is. Because intimacy is when we stop hiding. Intimacy is when we are willing to fully go forward. We're fully revealed. We're fully able to be out there, and we stop avoiding it. But a fan is somebody who pursues knowledge. And knowledge isn't good enough. Knowing about something, knowing about God isn't enough. And for me, this is a big challenge. Uh, but, but we do this kind of systematized. We have Bible studies. We have discipleship classes. We get together in small groups to study a book. 
And so in our minds and in our systems of church, we often do things that kind of reinforce this idea that if I study enough or read enough or, or go to enough classes, I'll somehow become a better follower of Christ. And so we equate discipleship with this accumulation, accumulation of knowledge. Even the fact that we've kind of professionalized ministry. The idea that I went to school for what we're all supposed to do. About two years ago, I spent a Saturday and most of a Sunday labeling things. And I labeled all my books. And I have a lot of books. I like, I like to read. I like to have a lot of books. And uh, that's kind of one of my big hobbies. But I went and I labeled all my books and I put them in order. It's really neurotic and it's really, really goofy. But I put all my books in order. And so if you borrow a book from me, which you're welcome to do, you're going to have a little tag on there with a little code because that's, because that's where it goes on the shelf. And you're going to open up, and I've read it. It's all written up and everything else. But I, I'm very particular about my books. And I'm not particular about much else. Heidi laughs at me because if I unload the dishwasher, things go missing. She says that I tend to put things up high where she can't get them. If I don't know where it goes, I find a spot that's open. And because Heidi's in the kitchen more than I am, things up high aren't filled. And so I put the things up there that I don't know where they go. If you open my drawers or walk in my closet, it's kind of clean is on the shelf and in the drawers and dirty is in the basket. There's no real order or organization otherwise. And so for me, knowledge and and accumulation of knowledge and reading are big things for me. And, And part of it is very spiritual and very much how I connect with God. But sometimes I take it too far. I came to this realization that that I was at a point where I was reading a lot what other people had to say about the Bible. And I was reading a lot what other people had to say about church. And I wasn't reading the Bible for myself. And I wasn't spending time with God myself. And and that was a point where I kind of had to stop and and take a step back. But but the reality is is that we often kind kind of gauge ourselves in terms of development, in terms of discipleship, based on where we are in terms of reading, in terms of study, and not in terms of how we've experienced God. Because knowledge ultimately does not equal discipleship. See, Simon, see, Simon was this guy who has studied. Simon was this guy who invited Jesus over because he knew what he was talking about and he wanted to see if Jesus knew what he was talking about. Simon was this guy who had gone to all the right schools and had all the right degrees, and so he knew everything, but he couldn't see the whole point of Jesus that was right in front of him. So Simon gives this invitation to Jesus to come over to eat, and it was very much a a public thing. It wasn't a a private dinner type thing. It would often happen in a courtyard or in this large room that was open to the public. And so the woman who, who saw this and approached Simon and Jesus was there with others. And so Simon is there to kind of publicly test. It's kind of like a debate. It's kind of like an interview. But Simon is doing this out in the public to kind of see and gauge where Jesus is and whether or not he truly is somebody to be listened to. And if you listen to the tone of his voice when the woman shows up, and you've listened to how he casts judgment, he's kind of done with Jesus pretty quick. We see this in Luke chapter 7. You can follow along. In Luke chapter 7, starting in verse 39, we have this encounter with Jesus and the woman that was read earlier, but it goes like this. It says, When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet... He would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. So Simon gives him this test. If you knew, if you were a prophet, you would know what's going on with this woman. You would know that she was a prostitute. You would know that she was somebody that was, that was not going to be good to be around. And so Simon asked this question. He kind of puts this test out there and Jesus fails it. And immediately, Simon kind of downgrades him to this level of teacher as opposed to prophet. 
You're, you're a rabbi if you've got people following you. So by definition, just kind of by, by basic definition of the term, Jesus is a teacher. And so he kind of, kind of condescendingly kind of makes him as equal. And ultimately what he's doing is, is that he's kind of creating this distance between him and Jesus. He kind of respond, I'm sorry, he kind of hides behind his knowledge. Later in verse 44, uh, Jesus has this response. He says, then he turned toward the woman and said to Simon, do you see this woman? Which is an odd statement because she's right there. But I think it's more of, do you really see her? Do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven as her great love is shown. But whoever has been given little loves little. Then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. See, see Jesus is, is kind of breaking some rules and breaking kind of some different things here because he's not passing the test. And it's the same test that the woman has failed. They're both considered outsiders and Jesus kind of changes things. But this woman who's reacting is taking a big risk. Because intimacy is ultimately very risky. It involves us kind of revealing ourselves. It kind of involves us stepping out in a way that, that kind of puts us in a very isolated, isolated spot. See, the woman didn't know everything. The woman didn't have all the answers. The woman had an experience with Jesus and she reacted. The woman is more of a follower. Simon is more of a fan. And so there's, it's coming to a point where we can kind of put words to it. We can say what it is that's going on in our heart, and we can kind of say that, say that God, this is, this is who I am, this is what I've been hiding, not because God needs to hear it, but because you need to say it, you need to step out and reveal that. If you flip over a couple of chapters in Luke, Luke chapter 9, you'll see as you pass a couple of very important and very well-known uh, uh, stories, mainly the feeding of the 5,000. And so Jesus has this encounter at Simon's house. He goes and feeds the 5,000. He does this teaching. And so people are starting to to kind of come around Jesus. People are starting to show up and and really, really come to see what's going on. And Jesus takes a moment after the feeding of the 5,000. He steps away away with his disciples and he starts to ask them some questions. And it's Luke 9, uh, starting in verse 18. It says, when Jesus was praying in private and his disciples were with him, he asked them, who do the crowd say that I am? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others that one of the prophets of long ago has come back to life. But what about you, he asked? Who do you say I am? Peter had answered, God's Messiah. You know, that's great what other people have to say. That's great what people have to say say about me, and you've heard that. That's great that the reputation is being built. But what about you? Who do you say that I am? You know, we come to church and we say that things are going awesome here and, and God is moving, but what is God doing in your life? You, know, you say, I've gone to church all my life and, and I, I'm a Christian and I don't do this and I don't do that, but what are you doing? What, what is it that you're doing to show that you're a follower, that you're not a fan? And this isn't about proving it. This isn't about earning our way to heaven. This isn't about some sort of, some sort of uh, a level that we have to attain. This is about the reality that God has done something in our lives and that we should react in, in kind to that. That we should react in response to that. Just as this woman, woman did. Because ultimately fans, they choose knowledge and followers embrace intimacy. Because knowing about it isn't enough. Later in Luke chapter 9, this is kind of the verse that has really 
kind of summing up this whole series. Starting in verse 23, he says, he said to them, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. Now remember, this is before any real thought of dying on a cross has happened. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit their soul? Whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and the holy angels. And so we have this moment where we have to ask ourselves daily, are we following? Are we following or are we somebody that just gets the right books, that goes to the right services on Sunday morning, that, that does the right things? Are we truly following? That when we come to this place, and we leave this place, we should be different. That worship should be something that is, that is, um, that's life-giving, that's encouraging, but it should be also something that is disruptive. Something that changes you. That things are different because you experience God, whether on a Sunday morning or wherever else or whenever else. That things are different, that you're a changed person because of the fact you've experienced Jesus. Here in a moment, we're going to take communion, and you're going to have an opportunity to take communion. And communion is this time where you can kind of act out whether or not you're following Christ. If you know about the first communion, the Last Supper, you know that many of the disciples seemed to have an idea of what was going to happen. In their minds, they had these assumptions about what was next. And the Last Supper, the breaking of the bread and the pouring out of the wine were ways to change all of that. Very, very, very much disrupted their plans. And you know that the Last Supper is all about us embracing this idea of dying. Embracing this idea of dying to ourselves, of letting go of things, and allowing God to come in. And so I'm going to pray. And you're going to have time after that, and the band will be playing, but you will have time after that to come and take communion. And if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, if you, if you are someone who knows Jesus Christ, you're welcome to come. But as you do, allow this to be a time where you kind of evaluate. How can I find intimacy with God? What do I need to do to come out from hiding? How can I fully be present in the presence of God? And so as we pray and as we sing, allow this to be a time where you go and you take communion to be for you to ask that question. Where maybe you don't have all the answers, but you know the experience your life should be different. Let's pray. Father in heaven, God, we, we come here and, and, and Lord, I love the brothers and sisters that I get to worship with in this community, but, but Lord, if we're honest, we're, we are all hiding something from you. And God, I know that for many of us, these are things that we've probably been hiding for a long time. And Lord, maybe we do the dance and we do the acts that we think are, are the right acts and maybe are, are fine, but by themselves are lacking. And so Lord, allow us to pursue you for intimacy. You already know us, but we need help revealing ourselves to you. And Lord, maybe the small act, but the incredibly important and meaningful act of taking communion can be a time where we step into this where we step into this with vulnerability, we step into this with with a willingness to go, we step into this with a willingness to be open to what you have. 
And so, Lord, as we take the bread and the cup, allow this to be a time where we all ask ourselves, how are we following you? And how are we being intimate with you in our relationship? And how can we move forward in that? Because, Lord, ultimately, this is your call on our lives that we take up our cross and follow you. Lord, we love you. It's in your son's name.